0: Thanks again for joining us this morning, especially if you're a guest. We're very happy that you're here with us. So over the past two weeks, we've been reading together in the book of Jude. And in week one, we saw Jude's problem as well as Jude's challenge. The problem is that false teachers have crept into the church unnoticed. And these false teachers are teaching God's people to pervert the grace of God for the sake of their own sensuality, for the sake of their own sinful desires. Now, as a result of this, Jude accuses these false teachers, as well as those who follow them, of denying Jesus as master and Lord. That's the problem. But then we get to the challenge. The challenge that Jude issues is for those Christians in his audience to contend for the faith. That includes those who are called, beloved by God, kept for Jesus Christ. That means every single Christian is a part of this battle. Every single Christian is a part of this fight to contend for the faith. And that includes Christians like you and me today. And then in week two, we saw Jude's stern warning of judgment. Jude made it clear that these false teachers and those who follow them are destined to end up like the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. The rebellious angels who fell from God's glory the wicked residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says they're destined to end up like Cain and Korah and Balaam before them, all Old Testament figures who faced the judgment of God. And those who were led astray by these false teachers, people whom Jude loves, people whom Jude cares about, he says that they will be right there with them. So that's why Jude gives his warning. He tells his audience and he tells us, Not to be like these false teachers. Do not be deceived by them. Don't be led astray by them. Or else you'll end up like a ship that hits a hidden reef. Nothing but destruction will come for you. And again, if you think Jude's words are harsh. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? Jesus is the one who said that you're better off drowning in the sea. Than being guilty of leading one of his people into sin. Harsh words, not just from Jude, not just from other authors in the New Testament, but words from Jesus himself about the importance of good teaching. So this morning, we switch to the final portion of the book of Jude, reading verses 17 through 25. Now, if you just read verses 1 through 16, there's no denying this book must have been pretty sobering and maybe even kind of alarming for Jude's audience. I mean, this entire book so far has been about false teachers and denying Jesus and God's judgment and shipwrecks. That's not exactly the most fun, giving us some practical guidance on how exactly we are called to contend for the faith. And while Jude's tone may be a little less tense today than it has been these past two weeks, don't be mistaken. The guidance that he gives can still be quite daunting. But then along with that challenging guidance, Jude also gives us something else. Today, he makes it clear that we Christians still have much to rejoice in, even as we contend for the faith. Even while the false teachers come in and cause their mischief, which they will. Jude makes it clear that there is still reason for confidence. There is still reason for God's people to have joy. And there is still reason for worship. So let's start by reading in Jude, verse 17. Feel free to use the Bibles that we have here and take one home with you if you don't own one. But before we read any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would watch over us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would even protect us. Again, we're talking so much about false teaching and good doctrine and just how important Jude views that and just how important Jesus himself viewed that. And so, Father, I pray that as we finish up this series, as we move on to whatever it is that you have next for us when this morning is over, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that you would protect us from those teachings that sound good, but maybe are less than healthy. Those teachings that can tempt us, those teachings that can draw our eyes away from you. And Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that your son came and lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave. Thank you that we have something worth contending for. Because your son is more than worth contending for. So Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this time. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Jude, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So the first thing Jude tells us to do in contending for the faith is to remember the faith. Last week, Jude forced his audience to look back at all of those Old Testament examples, all those people who had gone before them. But today he begins by calling his audience to remember something much closer to their own time. Instead of looking all the way back to the Old Testament, Jude calls them to look back to the Apostles. Now, at this point, it's likely that some of the apostles have already died. Jude is one of the later letters in the New Testament. But the words that the apostles spoke well before Jude began writing, those words have proven to be true. They were right. In the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And that's exactly what's happened here. Scoffers have arisen following their ungodly passions and tempting other people to do the same. But it's not just the apostles who made that prediction. Jesus himself made the same prediction of what would follow his death and his resurrection. Jesus warned his apostles to beware the false teachers that would arise and attempt to deceive his people. This is nothing new. But the beauty of this is that in the same way that something as awful as the cross didn't thwart God's purposes, and actually ended up accomplishing God's purposes, Jude makes it clear that these false teachers will not thwart, will not bring down the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But then Jude goes on to say that teachers like these teachers, they do not bring the church together under the grace of God and the lordship of Christ. Something that's so important to so many authors of the New Testament. They don't do that. They don't bring the church together. Instead, they cause divisions. And if you want to see just how drastic these divisions are, look one more time at verse 19. Because verse 19 tells us just how Jude views these false teachers in terms of their standing with God. Jude specifically says these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. Think about that. Devoid of the Spirit. That is a heavy accusation. When Jude says that they are devoid of the Spirit, we're not talking about division in terms of what kind of music people like, or whether or not they celebrate certain holidays, or what kind of food they would eat. Not that kind of division. According to Jude, these divisions are far deeper. Because these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit, they're dividing the church in terms of whether or not people can really, truly, even call themselves part of the church. They're dividing between people who have the Spirit and people who are devoid of the Spirit. And that's a big deal. Because look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Paul writes... You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, that part sounds pretty good. Christians have the Holy Spirit. Great. But then we get to the second part. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's a pretty big deal. Paul doesn't mention any words, and neither does Jude. Because Jude makes it clear that these false teachers... Because they've chosen sensuality over the grace of God and because they've denied Jesus as master and Lord, Paul says these teachers do not have the Holy Spirit. And by Paul's definition in the book of Romans, that means they cannot claim to be in Christ. That's how high the stakes are with what Jude is talking about. So with that in mind, It's no wonder that the tone of Jude's letter is so tense. It's no wonder that his urgency is so high. Because Jude knows that the kinds of divisions these false teachers bring in, these kinds of divisions affect people's eternal standing with God. And that is not something to ever take lightly. So Jude already gave that first piece of guidance to remember what the apostles predicted, that scoffers would arise and challenge people and tempt people to follow their own ungodly passions. But then we move to a second piece of guidance, and we see that starting in verse 20 of the book of Jude. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's only two verses, but there's a whole lot there to talk about and a whole lot there to think about. So let's look at it piece by piece. The first piece of advice that Jude gives is he tells these Christians to build themselves up, build themselves up in the most holy faith. Now, what does it mean to do that? What does that look like to build yourself up in the faith? Well, it's something that Paul seemed to understand in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23, Paul talks about his love for the Ephesians, how much he cares for them, how he wants them to be built up in the faith. And as Paul prays for the Ephesians, he prays specifically that they would grow in their wisdom and their knowledge of who God is. He prays specifically that they would grow in their understanding of the future reward they have because of what Christ has done. And he prays specifically that they would grow in their sense of awe as they consider the power and the might of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And then with all that in mind in chapter one, then in chapter two, Paul teaches that These Christians in Ephesus who have so little in common by worldly standards, he says they're being built together, built together, sounds familiar, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the opposite of being devoid of the Spirit. Paul wants the Ephesians to be built up. He wants them to be full of the Holy Spirit. And Jude wants the same thing. He wants these believers to build themselves up. He does not want them to be like the false teachers who are devoid of the spirit, who do not have the spirit at all, and thus cannot say they are even in Christ to begin with. So Jude tells us to build ourselves up, and Paul prays the same thing for the Ephesians. We're to be built up in our knowledge of God, our love for God, our dependence upon his grace. We're to be built up in our confidence in our future reward and thus our perseverance through trials until we get there. And we're to be built up in our unity as believers in spite of our differences, which may be vast. And we're to be built up in our ministry to both each other and to the world. So Jude says, if you want to contend for the faith, build yourself up. God has given you every single tool. You need to do that. He's given you his Holy Spirit. You are not devoid of the spirit. You have the Holy Spirit within you. God has given you his word. The whole purpose of the word is to build you up as one of his people. And God has given you the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ who can hold you accountable, who can teach you, who can encourage you, who can pray for you. God has given you everything you need to be built up. So Jude prays, and I pray, that you would build yourselves up in the faith. But then we move on and we see another piece of guidance Jude gives. He uses the phrase, pray in the Holy Spirit. He makes it clear that if we're going to successfully contend for the faith, it will not be by our own power. Prayer will be needed. Now, we're not talking about prayer for silly things, trivial things, things that don't really matter in the big scheme of things. We're talking about prayer in accordance with the will and desires of God. And if you want to see the will and desires of God, open up God's word. Now, prayer doesn't sound like the most aggressive tactic in the world when it comes to contending for the faith, right? I mean, prayer is not something you typically do when you're trying to actively fight for something, right? We often view prayer as some kind of passive last ditch effort when we can't do anything of real value. We pray when we've tried everything else and none of that stuff has worked. That's when we pray. But that's not how Jude presents it. And that's not what we see in the entirety of scripture. Prayer is never some weak or passive task. Prayer is a powerful weapon against the false teaching which would lead us astray. So in our fight to contend for the faith, to not be led astray from the truth of God, spending time with God in prayer is never a waste of time. It is never a waste of time. When you pray, you might feel like you're not doing much. But according to Jude, when you sit in a room and pray, you are actively contending for the faith. You are actively fighting for the faith. When you pray for our church, that we would guard ourselves against false doctrine. You're contending for the faith in that moment. When you're praying for your fellow believers, that they would be guarded from false doctrine. That's a way of contending for the faith. And when you pray for yourself, when you come into God's presence and ask him to keep you, to guard you, from, to protect you from those desires that the false teachers appeal to. In that moment of prayer, you are contending for the faith. So pray in the Holy Spirit. Another phrase Jude uses, keep yourselves in God's love. Now we're going to talk about this more at the end. But what this does not mean, this does not mean that you have to somehow keep yourselves out of God's doghouse. This does not mean that, well, God said he was going to love me unconditionally, but I should probably still keep my act together. That way he won't stop loving me just in case. That's not what Jude's talking about here. What Jude's talking about is something like what Jesus said in John 15. John tells the disciples that they are the branches to his vine. And the only way that they can be fruitful, the only way they can remain fruitful is if they abide in him. Jude is saying the same thing here. The only way our efforts to contend for the faith will be fruitful is if we are abiding in Christ. If we're keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, what does that mean? Again, keep yourself in the love of God. But what does that look like? Well, allow me to suggest that the greatest showing of God's love in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of history, the greatest showing of God's love is the cross of Christ. Jesus said a man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. So if that cross is the most complete showing of God's love for sinful man, and if Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to abide in Christ, my suggestion to you would be to fix your eyes on that cross. Keep yourself in God's love. By keeping yourself at the foot of the cross. I would encourage you. I would challenge you to take intentional steps. Every single day. To remind yourself of the cross. That's why we do communion. Every single Sunday morning. Here at Prairie View. We remind ourselves of the cross. By taking communion. We keep ourselves in the love of God. By intentionally remembering. His broken body. And his shed blood. But I think even. All of us could agree that Sunday morning communion, while it's a great reminder, while it's a great way to keep ourselves in the love of God, to remind ourselves of the cross of Christ, we need more reminders than just that. So I would challenge you and encourage you find intentional ways to remind yourself of the cross, take intentional steps to draw yourself to the foot of the cross day in and day out. It may be a cross that you hang on your wall that you can't leave the house without seeing. Maybe it's developing a prayer routine or somehow a scripture reading schedule, something like that. Whatever it takes to keep yourself at the foot of the cross, that can be a safeguard against false teaching. That is a way of contending for the faith. And one more thing Jude says before we take a quick break. Jude says that we are to wait. Wait for the mercy of Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, wait? Really? Wait. I mean, that doesn't sound like a way to contend for the faith, does it? Like we mentioned with prayer, this one sounds kind of boring, sounds kind of passive. But while waiting might not sound flashy or exciting, waiting is absolutely crucial. I mean, think about it. So much of the Christian life, so much of discipleship is waiting. We see that idea in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39. Jesus is speaking about his return. One day he will come back again. And that's what he's talking about here. And Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus makes it clear that we don't know when he will return over and over again. But as a result of that, he repeatedly warns his disciples to be ready. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. Don't get lazy. Be ready for my return because you never know when it will happen. In other words, Jesus commands his disciples and Jesus commands us to wait. To faithfully wait. Peter gets at the same idea in 2 Peter 3 verses 1 through 4. Again, we've talked about how these books have so much in common, Jude and 2 Peter. And a few of the things that we read here will sound familiar from what we've read in Jude. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That sounds familiar. Jude said to remember the apostles as well. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That sounds familiar, too. But then look at verse four. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus says that in the same way in the days of Noah. People went on with life as normal. People were marrying and giving in marriage. People were eating and drinking. People were pretending, were telling themselves that nothing was happening. Jesus says the same will be true today. In fact, Peter specifically says that one of the tactics the false teachers will use to lead us astray is to make us doubt Christ's return. To make us give up on waiting for any future reward. And instead pursue instant gratification through our sinful desires. If no flood was coming, why not live it up? The people of Noah's day said. And if Christ isn't going to return, why not pursue your own sensuality? That's what the false teachers will say. But we are called to wait Contending for the faith is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It will require patience, perseverance, faithfulness, all things that God is building up in us through his Holy Spirit and through his word. And so things like prayer and things like waiting may sound kind of boring. They may sound kind of passive. But Jude disagrees. Because when you actually believe that Christ is going to return. And you faithfully wait for him to do so, even when people around you think you're foolish. In that moment, you are waging war against false teaching. In that moment, you are contending for the faith. So remember, build up, pray, keep, wait. Now, all those things kind of sound like stuff I can do on my own, don't they? Those are all things that I can handle by myself, right? But then we get to verse 22. And Jude shows us in verse 22 and 23 that contending for the faith, it is not something we do alone. It's something that we do together. Jude, verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Have mercy on those who doubt. This is not something we do alone, contending for the faith, because one way to contend for the faith is to look out for each other, because we know that we're all tempted to doubt at times, some of us even more than others. If you're a young Christian, you will be tempted to doubt. You will be tempted to second guess the truth of God, the return of Christ, that you could possibly be in Christ. If you're a Christian who's suffering you can be tempted to doubt, especially if your suffering seems pointless and seems senseless. It's easy to get discouraged. If you're a Christian with little to no support system from friends or family or neighbors, again, it's easy to doubt. So we're called to look out for each other because according to Jude, contending for the faith is a team effort. And by showing mercy to each other in our doubts, by walking with each other through those moments of suffering, by discipling each other, by holding each other accountable, we contend for the faith by doing those things. We must refuse to let our fellow believers fend for themselves when it comes to false teachers and false teaching. Jude says that we snatch them out of the fire before it consumes them. And when Jude says that we're called to hate even the garment, Stained by sin. What does that mean? Well, the false teachers were willing to choose sensuality over Jesus. They were willing to choose sinful desires over Christ. They were willing to pervert the grace of God if that meant they got what they wanted. But Jude tells us to do the exact opposite. Don't choose sin. Don't pursue sinful desire and sensuality at the expense of Christ. Hate even the garment stained by sin. So all this stuff, this laundry list of things that Jude gives us, it sounds like a lot of pressure, doesn't it? The book is already sobering. It's already intimidating without all the stuff that Jude told us to do today. Now, don't get me wrong, Jude's not wrong to say any of this stuff. This stuff is incredibly important because the stakes really are that high. But then we get to the end of the book, verses 24 and 25. And after a book like this, after verses like this, with all these things we're called and challenged to do, all that pressure, verses 24 and 25 can feel like a breath of fresh air. They can feel like an oasis in the desert. So we read there now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So after all that stuff that Jude tells us to do to contend for the faith. He helps us breathe a big sigh of relief. That's because if you only read verses 17 through 23, didn't tack on verses 24 and 24, 24 and 25 rather, you might have thought that contending for the faith was all up to you. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Remember, keep yourselves in the love of God. Pray for each other. All a bunch of stuff that we have to do. But then Jude tells us that contending for the faith, it's not all up to us. It's not dependent upon our strength, our goodness, our confidence. It's dependent upon God's power. And the good news about that is that we worship a God who can keep us from stumbling, even though stumbling blocks are everywhere we look. We worship a God who can bring us blameless to his own presence, Jesus Christ, our Lord, accomplished that. So is contending for the faith a challenge? Sure. It will require patience and discipline and courage. Absolutely. But Jude tells us that we do not fight alone. This battle that Jude has called us to doesn't all depend on us. Because the war has already been won. That war wasn't won through our abilities, our success, our competence. That war was won through what appeared to be what appeared to be Jesus's failure. But it turns out that Jesus's supposed failure was actually God's victory over evil, sin, death and Satan. And because God has won that war through his son. We can win this battle. We can contend for the faith. We can look forward to a day when we don't have to do any contending anymore. We can look forward to a day when there will be no more temptation. There will be no more false teaching. There will be no more sensuality dragging our eyes away from Christ. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day with confidence. We look forward to that day with joy. We look forward to that day because Jesus already contended for us. That happened on the cross. And it appeared as though he lost at first. But he actually won. And because God has won the war, we can contend for the faith. It's a fight that we're called to. It's a fight that's worth having. One that, according to Jude, we don't have the option of sitting out. So as we leave this place this morning, we leave as warriors for the faith against that which would lead us astray. But we are joyful warriors, knowing that in the end, God wins and that in the end, we win, too, because Jesus died for us and Jesus rose from the grave and he announced God's victory once and for all. But he also secured ours. So let's leave here this morning, contending for the faith, looking forward to the victory of being in God's presence eternally, brought into the presence of his glory, blameless, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we read a verse like this, verses like these, and It's listed with challenges, it's full of challenges, things that we're called to do, things that you encourage us to do, things that you want us to do. And again, it's easy to read all that and get a little bit overwhelmed and think, man, how can I possibly do all these things? Who am I to think that I could possibly contend for the faith with all the temptations I have to face, with all the weaknesses I have? What makes me think that I could possibly win this battle? But again, we realize that the battle's not on us. You've called us to fight. You've called us to contend. But Christ has already won in the big scheme of things. So I pray that as we contend, you would give us joy, you'd give us confidence, we would constantly be in a state of worship. I pray that you would give us the strength that we will need To contend for the faith. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your mercy in those moments where we fall short. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that because of what your son did for us, because your son obeyed you, because your son was faithful to the mission that you gave him, that we can win our battles. That we can look forward to being in your presence blameless. Not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it. So let us leave this place as joyful warriors, knowing that we win in the end. And that we get to be in your presence when it's all said and done. That we get to worship you in eternity. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for your son Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.